0: Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. Um, As always, brought to you by the lovely people at Cathcart Associates. So massive thank you to them. On today's episode, I'm speaking to Heather Walker, Global Head of Data Science, Analytics and Visualization at Specsavers. Uh, Welcome to the show, Heather. Thank you. I always struggle to say the word visualization and I feel like I nailed that. I'm glad everyone shortens it to data viz, which I might do from now on. Uh, I tend
1: to as well. It's it's annoying to spell as well because mm. when you spell it as data viz, it's with a Z, obviously. Yeah. But I'm British, so when I spell it as visualization, it has no Zs in.
0: Yeah. We should just change that. Uh, but no, yeah, data viz definitely makes it a lot easier. Did you did they just add the visualization piece as like almost a pun on Specsavers, like link it nicely together?
1: That's a very good point. I'm not <laughs> sure if they have. I hadn't thought of that.
0: Uh, well, we're, actually, we're going to touch on some of that later in terms of like the uh, your overall remit. So we'll, we'll leave that. Um, but before we kind of jump into specsavers uh, and what you do with them uh, from a data point of view, uh, we always kind of tend to start an education on the show, mostly because no one's really come from the same background. Although I keep saying that, and physics is definitely starting to win the day in terms of like if there was a pattern Um, but I suppose it just makes sense but you did a physics degree and then went on to do a PhD in astronomy and astrophysics is that right?
1: Yeah that's right.
0: Nice one. Um, I also noticed that you did a little bit of fencing at university.
1: Yes I did I I did it mainly at university didn't haven't done it so much since I left um, but my husband's actually a fencing coach. That's how we, or well, was a fencing coach at the time. Um, that's how we met.
0: That's a good origin story. I also note noted down here. I'm pretty confident you're our first fencing physicist, which is just fun to say, which is the only reason I <laughs> wanted to mention it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But no, that's pretty cool. But yeah, you said you don't do it anymore. Oh, well, that's, that's a shame, but I'm sure. Yeah,
1: it has a habit of ruining your knees. So it's, uh, it's very uh, difficult to continue after a certain point. Quite a lot of people um, get to their kind of late 20s, early 30s and discover their knees no longer work properly.
0: Is that just from like the lunging?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, really easy. If you've got sloppy technique like me, it's really easy to end up overextending your knees.
0: That's so strange, eh? Because you wouldn't think of like fencing as like something that would destroy your knees. It would be more like I don't know what you would think. It was, it, yeah, I wouldn't have thought that, but I suppose it makes sense. Back to physics. Uh, I like I said, I, I suppose it's starting to win the day a little bit in terms of people's background, and it's probably the way that my sales director Stuart explained it to me, because he has a physics degree. He's like, you just by design, you take loads and loads and loads of data, and try and make sense of it is like the underpinning part like that's just kind of you can't avoid that in physics whereas obviously there's lots of disciplines where you can kind of avoid data or you can there's another way of doing it but like that's that's just physics
1: yeah I think so Uh, I mean you spend an awful lot of time in labs as a physicist like every Thursday um nine until five and stuff on weekends when you're studying um Uh, collecting data, analysing data. You do a lot of maths as well, first and second year um, of physics. You do some really intensive maths modules and then you end up applying that maths in later modules. So you end up really familiar with those, uh, with the kind of really hardcore aspects that you need to um, have a deep understanding of machine learning algorithms. So I think it does lend itself nicely. That said, I don't think it's, by any stretch of the imagination, the only route into data science that's a good route.
0: Yeah, um, I think it probably was like a few years ago, people got really weird about it. Like if you don't have yeah. a PhD in math or physics, like you're not gonna be a good data scientist, but it seems to be more and more that there's like, there's so many routes now Like you can, there's not a route almost. Like it's just like yeah. everyone, everyone can do it slightly differently. I mean, one of the one of the best data scientists I know that we've worked with in Manchester has no degree. I mean, he he started physics and math degrees, but, and uni wasn't for him, so he had he had the kind of some of the base skills anyway. But yeah, he has he has no degree, totally self taught. So yeah, yeah. my
1: data scientist also has no degree. Um yeah. I've got one who uh, has a background in marketing um, Makes and one sense who's as a well. computer scientist. So you know, a range there. Of different backgrounds from an educational perspective.
0: And probably quite and, um, important too, right? Because, like, if you're a computer scientist, you probably have a very strong set of skills this way. And then if you're a physicist, you maybe have really strong research skills. And if you've got the marketing background, maybe you're better at focusing on how it kind of works in the business, for example. And like, you can kind of knit them together quite nicely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that a physics degree doesn't teach you is anything about how people work, any behavioural psychology, any of that kind of messiness that you have to deal with when you're dealing with data science commercially, because let's be honest, the majority of data science commercially sits within the marketing space or within supply chain. And all of that's driven by people behaviour. Um, which leaves a lot of physics graduates having to catch up quite a lot in the first few months of their career and few years even. It takes a while to get a feel for that for some people. Yeah. Whereas something like marketing is purely about people behaviour, but economics is a mixture of people and maths and politics and all of that kind of thing. So I think that, that makes a really good background for data science.
0: Yeah, Computer okay.
1: science teaches you all of the technical stuff that's really valuable that you need to know underneath the hood. There's so much to data science that I don't think there's a educational background that will ever cover all of what you need to know and what you need to know to be good at data science.
0: And I don't know the answer to this, and we're already getting down a rabbit hole like five minutes in, but do you know much about the kind of PhD or master's courses in data science, like are they doing a good job of all of those things that you just said, like bringing together everything? Or do they focus purely on technical? I'm gonna get it, I literally don't know, so.
1: So the syllabuses that I've looked at do tend to focus more on the technical side of things than the broader subjects. I think you have to read around quite a lot if you want to understand psychology, if you want to understand behaviour, all of that stuff. That doesn't mean to say they're not valuable for people to do. I think having that really core understanding of... All those data science techniques will absolutely put you in a good position yeah. to be a good data scientist. We've actually hot off the press just just got approval to have two master's students come and do their dissertation with us. They do an industry oh, cool. placement. So from February, we will have two master students for three months working with us on some small projects yet to be defined. Um, for their dissertation, so maybe they'll prob- they'll get back to me in six months, and I'll let you know how it's gone.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, and they'll probably get more from those three months. No offense to the university, than they will in a year of a master, just because actually being in our business, and if that's what you want to do, if you want to go down the commercial data science route, you, it's kind of you can't really replicate it. Like I was going to say there that maybe a module on all data science and artificial intelligence courses should focus on like consumer behavior, for example, or yeah. like a, a business management module where you speak to someone in industry who has used data science to their advantage. It would be quite specific, um, but just to get people's cogs turning that way. Um, but even that's hard because you're not really replicating it. So yeah, stuff like industry placements are amazing. Um, Yeah, for
1: sure. Some uh, courses do offer um, a module on business, kind of like a mini MBA type topics, um, which I think is probably quite useful. But I think it's really difficult to replicate in an academic environment the challenges that you have in a commercial environment. It's hard to make a data set that is as messy as what you find typically in real life. It's hard to have a an artificially created multi-system database where you've got to source all your data from 15 different places and then clean it up and talk to 20 different people to find out where all the squirrels are in your data.
0: And also and, any of those people will have a completely different opinion on exactly. data, data science, where they keep it, what they do with it. So yeah, like it, it would be impossible. So it's almost like you don't want to do it and make like this fake scenario of this perfect stakeholder with the perfect data. And this is how much money it makes the company. So all you have to go and do is clean it up and like uh, uh, build a model. Like, you, yeah, you wouldn't you, yeah, you wouldn't want to do that. And the flip side, you don't want to put them off. So yeah, it's a difficult question to answer. But yeah, we'll get back to you and see how the, the placements go. But back to your uh, PhD, another question we always ask if someone has done a PhD, did you enjoy that process? Um, and we have had some wildly different answers to that question.
1: I enjoyed parts of it. And I really didn't enjoy other parts of it. I found it interesting. Obviously, it's really exciting when you do astronomy. You get sent off to all far corners of the world to use telescopes. That's really fun. And um, I enjoyed some of the teaching that I was doing. And I found the subject matter interesting. But it is bloody hard work. It's so hard work. And it's incredibly tiring And you need a level of emotional resilience that I don't think people talk about enough in the application process because you hit so many roadblocks over and over again. I think imposter syndrome is a major problem. You see all these really clever people around you and you think, I can't. Why am I here? I don't I don't belong here because you're so in awe of your colleagues who are doing really interesting things, but probably they're thinking the same thing about you. You know, it's, um, those aspects are really hard. And I think it's really difficult to know what to do at the end of a PhD because academia is obviously so focused on academia. There isn't an awful lot, or there wasn't when I was doing it, an awful lot of conversation about what else you could do for the, PhD students who were doing heavily applicable topics, like some of the industrially sponsored PhD students, it was obvious they could go into industry. You know, chemistry often has a lot of industry partners, but for something like astronomy, which is purely there for interest's sake, for curiosity, that's its whole purpose. What on earth are you going to do after that? And I I feel like I wasn't adequately prepared with what options I had that weren't complete career changes into something like finance, yeah, where right. you almost feel that those four and a half years that I'd spent doing my PhD would have been completely pointless because I could have just gone into finance straight after my degree, you know?
0: Yeah, so, no, I totally get it. I think it's probably getting a little bit better in some cases because there's more stories available. People will see people like your path that you've done. There's a few other people and you do see it a little bit more. And I think some of the universities are getting better. Um, yeah. But was there any temptation to stay in academia, go down kind of postdoc, lecture, like life in um, universities? Was that ever a consideration, do you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I did apply for some postdocs and things. And I found what I was doing interesting. And so obviously I thought about doing it and, and kind of part of me wanted to do it as, as a postdoc that it didn't work out and on reflection I think that was a better decision for me long term than if I had stayed in academia. Um, I think the academic lifestyle is really punishing you're moving around every three years from one country to another publish or perish no job security no security about where you're going to be living it's incredibly difficult to have you know a, a have relationships settle down have a family whatever if you want to do that even having pets like I had friends who had to every time they move put loads of paperwork in to get their pets uh, through quarantine in the new country that they were living in for one of them the pet was a chicken so that was a bit of a weird one but even cats and dogs are difficult to transport so That makes a lifestyle that is very much one I would only recommend if you are really super into it.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably one of the things that maybe doesn't get spoken about enough, like in academic circles, is like the PhD life and postdoc life and lecturer life is pretty tough. Like it's quite rare to be settled at a university for. 20 years in the city that you want to live in like it is all probably almost never happens yeah um so yeah it's it's a good point there's also you might not agree with this i imagine there's probably a point of no return as well like if you did 10 15 years in academia and then thought right i want to come be a data scientist now like it might be harder than just doing it straight out your phd uh so you're almost like indoctrinated a little bit
1: I would guess there would probably be a certain amount of Stockholm syndrome that you'd need to get over. I'm not sure from an adaptation perspective it would be um, I think people could still learn to be data scientists even after that length of time. I think the challenge is always going to be will there people who will there be people who will give you a shot there yeah. who will see that that's an okay career change to make? I think one of the things that I've been seeing in or discussions I've been having at conferences is, although when I started applying for data science roles, um, people were, as you said, all over PhDs. Now people are like, you know what, actually, PhDs don't have real life, um, real kind of company experience and sometimes don't make the best communicators and that's really important so there's a bit of hesitancy almost to hire PhDs and I would worry that people that have done many years in academia might struggle with that even though academia by necessity requires a huge amount of communication it's quite different communicating with your peers who are equally experts in your field versus communicating to someone that is completely non-technical.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I suppose it's also just like, if people, people that said they only wanted to hire PhDs were idiots, and people that now say that they don't think they're going to hire PhDs are also idiots. Like, yes. just m- meet all of the best people and decide if they've got the skills that you need like don't because someone has a phd doesn't make them a good data scientist but the, the opposite is also true um yeah, absolutely. So yeah it's just just trying to like people make hiring very complicated and it's one of the reasons i'm in a job to be fair um but if people just simplified it a little bit it, it would yeah, everyone would be a lot happier yeah. um so let's do a quick whistle stop through your career to date before we get to spec savers you mentioned applying for data science jobs, so you started life as a data scientist at Path Intelligence. And I think pretty quickly, it's fair to say, working your way up to principal data scientists, running the team, yes, hiring people, um, on the face of it seems pretty cool and impressive for your first job in industry.
1: Yes, yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, I think that's one of the benefits of working for a startup. It's really small, so you end up doing a lot of roles that are perhaps broader than what you might do in a larger company and opportunities uh, opportunities for advancement are there and uh, much faster so that opening came about because my manager left and they needed someone to manage the data science team and I said I'd be up for it so And it was pretty much as simple as that. I don't even remember there being a formal interview process or anything, which is uh, one of the benefits of startups. One of the downsides of startups is that they fail, and that's what happened with Path Intelligence. So uh, (laughs) that was a uh, somewhat stressful experience. Um, Do
0: do you know what, though? Probably a little bit like what I said about the master's interns coming into Specsavers for three months, you probably learned more in a year at Path Intelligence than you would have six years at large bank, like whatever, um, as a data scientist. Like you have learned more about managing the team, like dealing with failure, dealing with risk, like seeing the impact of the data work, like in real time as well. Like it's, it's not like you're doing something and you never really see what happens with it. Like it's one of those things that if you can work at a startup is almost always a good idea because you get a different look at so many different things um and one of the things i was going to say about it being small and you've already touched on it's like you kind of get chucked in the deep end but if that if you're up for it that's actually quite a good thing
1: Yeah, I think I wouldn't agree necessarily that it's almost always a good idea to work at a startup. (laughs) I think it's only a good idea to work at a startup if you can afford for it to go down the pan with no notice, if you've got savings, which, uh, to be honest, I didn't have savings at that time. And most of the people working at the startup did not have savings. So when we were told on the Thursday that we weren't getting paid on the Friday, and the company was folding.
0: Yeah, that's um, hard
1: that so if you can if you've got a buffer then it's really fun and you do get to do lots of broad roles you get to work with some great people if you are the kind of person that likes to work at startups you'll meet other people they'll be your people and that's really important i got trained by the devs on various you know software development practices which came in handy later and things like version control and um, making sure I comment my code. And they showed me the value of having a common language between data scientists and developers, which I don't think people talk about enough in data science. I think one of potentially one of the reasons why people are moving over to Python versus uh, R is because software developers won't use R They'll use Python. So, when you want to hand over your code to a software developer to integrate it into whatever functionality you're building, any of your products, even in businesses where they're not tech businesses, Python's always going to be an advantage because the devs can see what you're doing. Yeah, not that And it was sense. something that um, the devs at Path Intelligence um, really impressed upon me. And I feel like that stood me in good stead.
0: That makes sense, and I think even stuff like you mentioned, like version control, and now we're looking at the kind of rise of ML ops, and people are actually paying attention to like how scalable is it, how kind of repeatable is it, and and working much more like a software developer would. Yeah. Um, but software development has had so much longer to get to this point, obviously. So like, it, is, it makes sense. Um. But yeah, that's. I think that will help. Um. Some yeah. of that. But yeah, you're right. And I suppose, from the startup point of view, I'm probably looking at it more from the role that we do. If a technical person, if a if a good technical person becomes available immediately, there's so many of our like customers that would just bite your hand off. So it's like it's almost like the risk v reward, especially in the market like it is today. You, there's so much demand for technical people. So yes, if if there's a startup you like the look of and it's a little bit risky it's it's almost worth going for it purely based on the fact that the market is so busy like you can you can bounce back and get something pretty cool pretty quick but yeah i appreciate the fact that you go into work on thursday log in and then you just get told there's no work and no money like that's pretty terrifying yeah um, and i would not be able to handle that personally but yeah
1: yeah i mean it's um i think all job security is a bit of an illusion let's be honest yeah. if we look
0: at all the energy companies recently that were very yeah, exactly. successful and the
1: pandemic you know you have no idea when the next pandemic's going to happen you had so many people who weren't ex- who were thought they were in really secure jobs um ended up being made redundant because of circumstances completely beyond the business's control yeah. um job true job security comes from having skills that are really marketable and we're very lucky in data that our skills are really marketable. So And becoming you, more so
0: sure with COVID. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So I think as a data professional, the risk is lower, but you have got to balance that out with could you take a month off? Do you so people really early in their career maybe they've still got student debt, whatever, um like student overdrafts and that kind of thing, probably not I wouldn't recommend going for a startup then. But once you've got a bit of a buffer, if you can survive a month or two without um, without any money coming in, go for it. Startups are great.
0: Yeah, the sweet spot is probably like a couple of years after uni and a couple of years before like a big mortgage. Like, yes. That's, like, that's the sweet spot, just to throw caution to the definitely. wind. Definitely, <laughs> I mean, definitely. You, can just, you can just have fun and like live on pot noodles and that. Like it's all right. Yeah, for um, sure. But yeah, the, having just moved now, the thought of a month of no income is like sending shivers down my spine. From that, you did the opposite of a startup and yep. joined Carnival Cruises. Uh, I think part of PO, right? That's like the kind of parent company.
1: Carnival is the parent company. Carnival p- parent company. Yeah, P&O, yeah. Yeah, P&O just, and, and Cunard.
0: I just know p because we used to get the ferry from Portsmouth to France um, when I was younger. So I just <laughs> always remember the big like branding of a PO ferry. Um, Funnily
1: enough, they're not actually the same company. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so Carnival does P&O Cruises and uh, Cunard and Princess Cruises and a number of other cruise brands across globally. Um, But P&O Ferries is a completely different company. We did actually used to get um, quite a few calls into the call centre from people who were like, um, I need to rearrange my ferry ticket. And we're like, it's wrong P&O. Someone should
0: change one of their names.
1: yeah. I mean that would be sensible. I'm not entirely sure how the um, uh, what would it be trademark infringement laws work with that. I imagine it's like
0: it's like if you had a a sunglasses only brand called Specsavers, and then someone phones you to get an eye test, you're like, no, no, that's not that's not our Specsavers. That's the other one. Uh, Exactly, just be be absolutely infuriating. Um, Anyway, so my anecdote is is. unimportant at this point since it was wrong anyway a cruise company might not seem like an obvious move for a data scientist and that's probably a good lesson in itself for people looking to get an industry like you can work anywhere but you did some pretty cool stuff and I suppose it makes sense as well because there's so there's so many customers there's so much footfall there's so much repeat business like you did stuff on like predicting high value customers customer loyalty just automating like the classic job of a data scientist, like automating some stuff to make other people's lives easier. Um, and then visualization, like we, we said, we we're going to touch on as well for, for like the finance team and stuff. So like that just makes sense. But when you look on the face of it, like ah cruise company, like what would a data scientist do? But there's loads of stuff you can do.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, we also got involved in um, looking at what the requirements might be for refits. So what kinds of things were popular with the customers and um, what amenities should we put on board, all of those kinds of things. Onboard sales, I didn't do so much on onboard sales, but um, an ex-colleague of mine has so much stuff around um, what people are buying in the various shops on board, what they're spending in the um, bars, how can we optimize the packages that you um might buy you know like drinks packages that kind of yeah. thing what offers might you want so yeah absolutely there's so much that and
0: i'm sure now as well like you could look at like predictive kind of asset maintenance like as are the ships gonna keep going for as long as you hope they are yeah. or longer or even like computer vision technology around like the cameras and stuff on board and picking up people's habits and like all these different things like it's just it's just another example of you can yeah, you can just use data in so many ways. Yeah, and there's definitely. so much. There, there's so many customers, and customers just normally just means data. Yeah, um, so it makes sense. Just so we don't end up getting bogged down on, on every role. Last but not least, before Specsavers, you worked for Wiggle. I actually, had no idea who they were, and when I went onto the website, I wasn't sure if it was right. But they're like a sport and goods company, right? Like cycling, yeah, right, like yeah. cycling and stuff like that. I suppose jumping into that world of e-commerce, just like we said, customers means data. And it's probably still one of the most kind of sought after or kind of obvious routes for data scientists is like, can they work somewhere in the world of e-commerce and help with that? Um, And again, you did some cool stuff like customer segmentation, customer journeys. One of the things I noted on your LinkedIn was you moved everything to GCP, right? Yeah. How did that come about? And it's one of the things I keep thinking is going to happen more and more. And then because everyone that I know that uses GCP really likes it, but then it just doesn't seem to be the norm.
1: So the previous system that we had, um, I won't name the brand, but it um, it was very expensive for what we were getting and it just wasn't working. And it was a Hadoop system. And I don't know if you've ever tried hiring Hadoop Engineers and architects. And it's, hard. Um, it's hard at the <laughs> best expensive. of times, never mind if you're in Portsmouth, South Coast, far enough away from London that it's really difficult to get London talent, but not so far away that we've collected our own pool of talent. There were <laughs> literally three people in Hampshire on LinkedIn with the skills that we needed, and they were all happy in the jobs. Um, that they uh, were in. So how we, sad when
0: you phoned that out.
1: <laughs> I know, it was it was just a nightmare. And also, because it was so expensive, Wiggles is a relatively small company. Although it's got quite a big presence within the cycling and triathlon community, it's still quite a small company. Yeah. The amount that we were spending, we just weren't getting the value from it, um, uh, from the old system. So we did a bit of a review um, to work out what would be the right path for us to go down um, and Google... Uh, came out as the one that uh was right for the business at that point
0: nice. so
1: we moved all of the stuff over um so part of that transition was done by um uh, a um external um agency part of it was done by me i ended up looking after some of the engineering tasks as well as some of the more data sciencey things um so that was quite fun
0: yeah I bet um, um and that's just another cool one to like Obviously, this is not why you do stuff, but it's like another cool thing to tick off on a CV. Like y- you've yeah. been through that process, um, and just gives you a look at a different platform. Because you definitely see people that have only ever worked on AWS or they've only ever worked on Azure, and like that's that's fine. Um, but if you can get a look at other platforms, it makes you more desirable, but also probably makes you a bit more well rounded as well. Like you, you can appreciate different parts of different systems, um, so that's pretty cool. We've made it. We've got to spec savers. January 2020, what made you decide to make the move to Specsavers in the first place? Like, What was it that attracted you?
1: So in common with a lot of job moves in the um, uh, data uh, world at the moment, I was poached. Nice. Uh, I wasn't really looking to move away from Wiggle. I was having fun at Wiggle, um, but I got a call from a recruiter and the job sounded amazing. So we're going through a data transformation It was coming in right at the very early stage of that transformation. There was no real data science going on. So it was the opportunity to build up my own team, kind of shape the data science journey at Specsavers and the analytics journey and all of that, which um, was really appealed to me. It was a leadership position. And having been a one-woman show at Wiggle, I, I ended up doing or feeding into a lot more of the leadership discussions than you might expect for a data scientist at perhaps a larger organization or one that isn't the only data scientist in the business. And I really enjoyed that. So moving more into that leadership role was really appealing to me. I can see with the rise of AutoML and citizen data science, my feeling is that the need for hardcore data scientists is going to reduce a little bit over the next few years. And so moving into a different, slightly different career path for me felt like the right thing to do. So all of that came together as, right, this is a role I really want. And the ability to evolve into a big team role rather than just jump from having no team under me to managing 20 people, um, that's a big jump. So I had four people in my team when I started at Specsavers. And over the last two years, I've grown that now up to eight, planning to grow some more next year, hopefully. Um, And that transition's been nice and smooth for me so learning more of those management skills I've been able to do that in a much more gentle way than if I'd switched directly into a head of role at a more established team.
0: Yeah it's a classic like um, we actually spoke about this before but it's like you get to a certain point as a data scientist then you become the head of data like it's the same thing as software engineering you become the head of or the CTO or whatever and like you go from maybe being a kind of technical mentor or like you were at Wiggle, the, the only data scientist. And then, yeah, you get chucked 20 people to manage. And like from a technical point of view, that might be quite easy for some people, but like actually managing people is quite difficult and it's nicer to have the chance to explore it a little bit with four people than just getting chucked a whole team who've already got all their own problems from the previous person or whatever it might be. Um, so, yeah, no, that's definitely a good way to do it. And I'm sure from a kind of business point of view, there must be loads of different work at Specsavers from a data point of view. But touching on your title is the science, the analytics and the visualization. Yeah. It's, it's definitely becoming a bit more popular to kind of bring those things together, which I think probably makes sense. Like quite often the, the data viz part is like, it's the key piece of the puzzle. It, it's like the front end development of data science. Like it's what people actually see but it sometimes gets kind of forgotten about or like siloed. So it kind of makes, I think I think it works from the, the some of the people that I know that have got a similar job to you. It kind of makes sense to knit it together, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think it also reflects different parts of the data maturity curve. You have the um, descriptive analytics right at the bottom of that curve, which is what on earth is going on? And that's what visualization is really, really good at. Even before you start building any fancy models, whatever, just understanding what's going on in the data and helping business um, leaders understand what's going on in their data. Just some of the the basic KPI reporting, um, telling them the story of the business area they're trying to look after and helping them build a strategy off that. And then you can start building data science models to support that strategy rather than having your data scientists just building random stuff and saying to the business, look, here's one I made earlier. What do you think of this? It's much easier to get a business buy-in and get things embedded into a business if you do things from a business first perspective.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm probably using some of the stuff you learned on the way to Specsavers that maybe kind of less experienced data science people might miss out. The kind of like you said, the basic KPI report and getting them to understand what's going on before. Hey, here's this like neural network, and I can yeah. do all I can do all this cool stuff. And it's just well, yeah, but they probably don't care about that yet. Um, Yeah,
1: exactly. You know, you, you have the whole, I can predict customer churn, you can contact your customers before they start churning, blah, blah, blah. Great. But at the moment, because we have so many different systems, I don't know how many customers I have. That's been a conversation I've had with people at a couple of places and at Specsavers, you know, well, that kind of conversation, you know, some of the hygiene factors that you kind of assume are going to be in place in a business that's investing in data science. We're across so many different um, parts of the journey and different parts of the organisation. And I think um, going back to why I moved to Specsavers, it's such a broad organisation. We're not just a in-store site tests and spectacles retailer. We yeah. own our own supply chain. We're in multiple different countries all over the world, not just the UK and Republic of Ireland. So you've got those cultural differences.
0: Yeah. And you do, online you do medical businesses stuff as well, right?
1: As well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have um, New Medica, which is, does kind of minor eyesight surgery and a kind of proper ophthalmology yeah. rather than optometry.
0: Yeah. So I mean, even just bringing all of that together yeah. is, is a nightmare job Like in hmm. some ways. So yeah, getting the, the building blocks in place is so important. And it's sometimes you see in really complex organizations like that, the data team almost focuses on like one and they do that quite well. And then other areas of the business either get a bit miffed, or they go out and spend loads of money on a data science consultancy, uh, yeah. or they bring in like a uh, one of the big massive Big Four or big consultancies to do like full pieces of work for them. When in reality, they could probably just use the team. But there's just the, the communication isn't there. Um, so yeah, no, it sounds like it's definitely been the right way around. At spec savers, and a bit of a theme of your career has been well, you've worked at different size companies, but kind of leading, growing, managing, hiring data teams. Is there anything you've learned along the way that is kind of like your go-to or your kind of top tips for, for hiring? But I suppose also in the market we're in just now, retaining really good data people.
1: I think if you look at the salary surveys and that kind of thing, it's really useful to understand what, is going on in the minds of potential candidates. Recent salary surveys have suggested things like flexible working being a really important benefit, where four or five years ago, people were talking more about bonus. A theme that's pretty constant throughout the last five years of um, surveys of data scientists is they really like to learn. Mm -hmm. So you have to make sure you're providing a variety of interesting projects, making sure you move them around enough so that they're learning new things, ideally provide some training, lots of training for them so they can broaden their minds. Um, And I think that's really, it's really easy to do that if you think about it, because most businesses have got a variety of different projects that you could have people working on you just have to make sure that you're bearing that in mind yeah and there are loads of different training platforms training courses available you just have to make sure you have budget for that budget can be a challenge in a smaller business much more so than it is in in larger businesses even in larger businesses you do have to consider are you getting value for money but even so that's really important to people I think when you're hiring people, don't have a fixed idea in your mind about exactly the kind of CV you want to look for. Think more about the skills you want people to have than the job history or the educational history. Back to our conversation earlier about all the different routes that you can have into data science. Don't be put off by someone that's been 20 years in academia. Equally, don't be put off by someone that hasn't got a degree, maybe hasn't even got A-levels. You know, just don't limit yourself because otherwise you end up hiring a bunch of clones and a diverse team. I really strongly believe that a diverse team makes a good team. All those different experiences people learn off each other, both from a, and when I say diverse, I don't just mean make sure you have enough women in your team. That's really, that's important, but it's really reductive view of diversity. I mean, have cultural diversity, educational diversity, um, diversity of background, all of those things really help to form a team that functions together really well.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's so true. And actually, it just reminded me, I need to finish writing a piece because I went to an event a couple of weeks ago and uh, Matthew Said was talking. He was like a British table tennis champion and now writes books and is a journalist and all this kind of stuff. But he was talking about diversity and not diversity for diversity's sake. It was much yeah. more around what you just said about don't don't build an echo chamber. Like don't have, your team, don't have eight PhD astrophysicists sitting in the room trying to do heavy research and never really like changing up their approach. Um, like have people with no degree with a totally different degree with 20 years experience versus no years experience and bring them all together and see what happens. Like, yeah. it totally made, And he used a really good example, which I won't bore everyone with on this, but it, it was, it was really interesting because people really disagreed with it at the time. It was like a kind of like a think tank type thing. And they're like, well, why would you have those people? They don't know anything about that subject. And they were like, well, yeah, that's the whole point like they don't, they're they're all really smart and they'll bring something to this table, but they won't, it won't be what everyone else would bring. Um, yeah. And that was a really clever way of looking at it. And it's really similar to hiring. Um, so no, that makes sense. And I think really good. Last couple of things. So we had a chat a couple of weeks back um, before we did the show and it, we got onto the topic of like, where does data sit in an organization? And, and I used to kind of, I don't really even really know why I did it, but I used to kind of bang the drum of like, we need a chief data officer, but obviously not everyone needs a chief data officer, but you've been in a fortunate position to report directly to CEO and a startup to report to really technical people and finance and, and just had that whole kind of, I don't know, the, you've done all of it almost. Um, do you think there's a best way or is it is it totally dependent on the organization?
1: I think it really depends on the organization. I think on the face of it, sitting in finance that doesn't feel like the right place for a data scientist, especially not when the majority of the things that I was working on at Wiggle um, were in marketing, but that was where the data team sat. That was where BI sat and it absolutely made sense for me to be within that team. Yeah. Um, at Carnival, there wasn't really a central data function. I sat within the customer analytics team and that made sense with Carnival's business structure. Yeah. At Spec Savers. We are a central global data function. We report ultimately into a CIO. Um, I think it is really important to have a voice for data on the board. I don't know whether that has to be a dedicated CDO, but yeah. it is still really important to have that voice for data on the board.
0: That makes sense. It's a good way of looking at it. it's like a, you need a champion for data on the yeah. board. Similarly, as you need a champion for lots of other things, but that doesn't necessarily. Yeah, you wouldn't have. You wouldn't have individuals doing all of that, or the board would be 20 people, 30 people instead of four. Like, do you know? Yeah, that that makes sense.
1: Exactly. But as Specsavers, we're actually planning to go for a kind of hybrid model. We've got the central data team, which is where I sit, the global data team. Um, But we are looking to build data um, capability within the business. I think people often underestimate how important business understanding is in the data science process and how valuable it is having uh, someone who is an expert in their area of the business, doing that data science, doing that reporting, doing that visualization. Um, And so our philosophy at Specsavers is to bring data to everyone. So we're looking to train up all of the business. So arguably, Data is going to have a central function, which sits within technologies, reports up to the CIO, but data is also going to be in every other area of the business.
0: Yeah, that that actually makes sense because I've had so many conversations with large clients who say, we're going to bring all of the data centrally. And like Specsavers, they're really complex with different areas of business all over the country. So maybe something to be said to have that hybrid approach because you need a bit of both. Um, And it helps with your point of keeping people doing new things because you can rotate people around like you can have them seeing different parts of the business and they might be doing similar models or similar technical work, but it has a totally different outcome. So like it's yeah, it's it's keeping it fresh, I suppose. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think the
1: challenge with that model is making sure you get consistency across the business and keeping links between the different pockets of analytics professionals. And so building up a community is really important, making sure that you are touching base across the organization. And that's where a central data function can be really important because we can act as that nexus, as that center of excellence um, to help bring those groups of data professionals together. I do think bringing all the data together centrally is really important. Everyone having a single source of data or um, at least a single repository of data. We have a, a, a data lake that we work from, but having the decentralized data people all working off the same system that's showing to be really effective and um, is a core part of our strategy over the next two years for the rest of, of our transformation journey.
0: No, so it makes sense and it sounds good, and it'd be cool to see how it all plays out. I think that's us. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, there's loads of more we could talk about, but like we said, we'll look at doing it again and seeing how the placements go, see how the, the team structure goes. You said you're looking to grow the team next year, so. Uh, what does that look like and all these things so yeah we'll definitely try and look at doing that but for now thank you very much
1: cool thank you thank you for having me